I couldn't get Dallas Holmes to come and sing in person, but uh, I've listened to that song about 20 times in the last two weeks, and it really touches your heart, touched mine. Uh, today, I'm going to pick up where Howard left off, talking about the love of Jesus. And you might wonder, uh, go ahead and put my first slide up there, Rob. There you go. How in the world can the military be connected to the love of Jesus? Well, I'll, I'll just start by saying, that's my favorite color up there on the screen. And one of my, my good buddies said, yes, just like your personality, olive drab. So I don't know about that, but anyway. Last Sunday, Howard asked me, had I, I ever been a point man? And I don't know if you heard my uh, response from over there behind the wall. I said, heavens no. <laughs> a point man is usually your most experienced combat soldier in your unit. And uh, they're, they're the veterans in combat. And uh, the reason why is the point man is the one who goes out in front of the unit as the unit is moving in enemy territory. And it's very important that they be on their point and be alert to any signs of the enemy to avoid an enemy ambush. You know, I didn't need to be a point man in order to get wounded. Lieutenants get wounded and killed easy enough without being a point man. But I have, I've written about how important point men are for an infantry unit. And many of them are the first to get wounded or killed in a unit. But I want you to think somehow today, uh, the church is on a battlefield. And uh, let me see if I can keep up with myself here. The church is more like being on a battlefield than it is in a country club environment. And we have this from scripture. This is not anything that I have made up. Uh, Here's what the scriptures say about the church and you as a soldier of Christ. 1 Timothy 6.12 tells us, we're to fight the good fight of faith. Second Timothy 2.3, and this is one of my favorites, commands us, this is a command, it's not a request, to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is where I always make a dig to Roger, I won't make it today or to Al. You can go through the entire Bible and you won't find it be a good marine for Jesus Christ. It says good soldier for Jesus Christ. But I won't say that today. <laughs> okay. Well, 2 Timothy 4, 10, chapter 10, verse 4 says this. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and every high thing that exalts, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we're to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
Finally, Ephesians 6.11 says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers of darkness in the high and the heavenly places. This is not mere metaphorical language. We don't think like this in our day-to-day. Living in suburban America, we don't think that we're on a battlefield, but we are. And we're to have the same courage in our faith as a soldier in combat. Well, Peter reminds us in chapter 4, verse 12, do not think it strange when you encounter a fiery trial as something strange has happened to you. You know, we think that when we, we incur a fiery trial in our church is, is undergoing a fiery trial. We think this is strange. This is out of the ordinary. No, it's not. We're not, we're, here's what it's, the scripture says. Don't think it's as if some strange thing happened to you that, but rejoice, rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. Oh my goodness. Rejoice in a fiery trial. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That's not what our flesh wants to hear. Well, where does Jesus show up in this, in, in, in this military background? When I preached on Joshua back on Veterans Day some several months ago, when Joshua was looking at the walled city of Jericho and wondering how in the world is he going to capture that city as he was directed by God, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, showed up. And Joshua wanted to know, are you friend or foe? And are you for us or against us? And Jesus' answer, recorded in scripture, I am, I come as the commander of the Lord's army. Well, you know, there's another place in scripture where Jesus comes as a warrior. I think you know where it is. It's in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. The apostle John writes this. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the armies in heaven, clothed in the linen, in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. How seldom do we think of the Lord Jesus as a warrior on our behalf? Um, He's actually the point man for us as a church. He goes before us. He's a point man for you as an individual believer and soldier of Christ. We just celebrated 
St. Patrick's Day. Patrick had a prayer that he often said. When he went to Ireland, he was in danger. He was there to convert Ireland to Christ, the island to Christ. And here's the prayer that he prayed. I'm extracting a part of it. Christ, shield me today against wounding. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down. I arise today through the mighty strength of the Lord of creation. Well, wouldn't that be a great prayer for us, at least us, to think those thoughts. We don't have to memorize the prayer to have that kind of thought. That Christ Jesus is the point man of this church, and he has it in his protective care. This is a comprehensive picture of how Christ surrounds and protects his people. Beyond this, I want us to come to an understanding of how Christ strengthens us individually as a believer, a follower of Christ. And to the extent he is strengthening each of us individually, he strengthens our church. Well, the first thing I want you to see here is what is God's mission for the church? Now, I know what we say our mission is, is to disciple everyone, essentially. God has a cosmic mission for us beyond individual discipling. And I want to share that with you because I think it's important when we get caught up in our day-to-day life struggles, we lose sight of the big picture. And I just want to share that briefly with you. Let's turn our attention to our scripture text uh, today in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. This is the second of two strategic prayers in the book of Ephesians. Back on, uh, in January, I believe it was, I preached on the first strategic prayer from Ephesians 1. I was a little ambitious that day. I thought I was going to cover both of them. only covered one. I'm going to cover the second one today from Ephesians 3. But let me tell you about, the, just a, a quick reminder about the, the prayer in Ephesians 1. It was a prayer for the church to receive wisdom and revelation from God concerning three foundational truths. Three truths which fortifies the believer for the spiritual warfare that he's going to endure. I remind you that they're given to the church not merely as head knowledge, but to be practiced, to to live according to these truths in your day-to-day Christian life. They're found in uh, verse 18 and 19. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to be brief on this. The first petition in that first strategic prayer was this out of verse 18. For us to know and place our hope in God's calling who and what God has called us to be as a local church and followers of Christ in this life and in the life to come. Well, the second petition in the second part of verse 18 was to know and claim the riches of the glory of God's inheritance. 
to remember we're a special people. We're called, the church is called the inheritance of God in Scripture. We not only have, are not only special as a people to God, but we have a special mission in life to accomplish for God and with God. Third, third petition is this in verse 19. We're to know, to practice, and depend upon the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And that's the segue for the second prayer we're going to look at today. What I want to do uh, as we look at this second prayer, as I read it, I want you to think of it. I'll be praying it for us. You don't have to follow along in your scripture. I'd much prefer you close your eyes in prayer and take this prayer that Paul prays for the church of Ephesus as a prayer for the church at Baraka because it is immediately applicable to us. So with that request of you, let's pray, and then you can read your own translation. I'm, I'm praying out of the New King James uh, Version. Let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant to us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of God. And he closes this prayer with a, this praise. Now, now, right now, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you'd like to follow along in your sermon notes, the first thing we will be doing doing is looking back at Paul's reason for the prayer. He starts out by saying, for this reason. Well, what is that reason? Thank you, Rob, for keeping up with me. Okay. Let's take a look back to Paul's reason for this prayer in Ephesians 3.14. The heavenly reason is given in chapter uh, 3, verse 10 right before the prayer, that now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is a heavenly reason for the church. This is our heavenly mission. We don't often think of our heavenly cosmic mission uh, that God has called us to. Well, this is the church's strategic mission 
to convey the wisdom of God to the heavenly realm. Now, folks, how many of you thought of that as our mission this week? I confess. I did because I was in these scriptures. But on a typical week, I may not even come across this idea. And we lose sight of it because of the, the cares and the worries of our flesh day to day. Now, when he says that on the heavenly realm, it not only includes, includes the angels of God, but it also includes the fallen angels. And some have said it also includes, includes those who've gone from this life to the life to come. What's a major theme in Ephesians? The heavenly places. Mentioned uh, five times in the book of Ephesians. And I've listed the scripture verses there for you. Ephesians 1, 3, 1, 20, 2, 6, 3, 10, and 6, 12. It's not a minor theme at all. Well, secondly, let's look at the eternal purpose that God has for us. In Ephesians 3, 11, the reason for his prayer is according to the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the strategic purpose that God has for us as a church. In Christ, now here, here's the key. We go back all the way to the first chapter of Ephesians where Paul is laying out the, the purpose and the strategic uh, reason that God has called us. And here it is in verse 4. Now listen to this. We are chosen to be holy in love. The scripture says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That in love, that little prepositional phrase is exactly the purpose, that we should be holy in love. This is the first mention of love in Ephesians. Love is a major theme mentioned 13 more times in the book of Ephesians. You could say it's a book of love. Maybe not quite like the Gospel of John and First and Second John, but probably only second to those books. The eternal purpose of the church to which Paul refers is that we should be holy and without blame before God in love. This is the eternal purpose. Now, in Christ, we have a glorious future. In the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one, in Christ, all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. There it is again. That's part of the strategic mission, combining all under the feet of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, in Christ, we have a guarantee. We have a promise, an irrefutable promise that will last until God is ready to bring us home. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. <clears throat> Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? That's the church. Until the redemption of the church, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of 
which came to indwell in you at the moment you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now the next thing I want to do is look at the four petitions in Paul's prayer that we prayed. After Paul addresses his prayer in verse 14 to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, notice he asked God to, to grant four specific positions. What does the word grant mean? To freely give. To give without cost to us. Oh, it costs a lot for us to have something granted to us by God. The very life of Jesus Christ on the cross. But what I want you to see here, three times Paul mentions the riches of God. In, in, he's to grant these petitions according to the riches of God in Christ. Now, here's what they are. Three times Paul mentions the riches of God in Ephesians. Chapter 118, we saw that earlier. We are to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance. In chapter 2-7, refers to the surpassing or exceeding riches of his grace. And in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul calls upon the unfathomable or unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 13. I don't think I have this in your notes. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That theme is throughout the Gospels. Now look, when we pray, do we think that we're praying to God who has unsearchable riches? I don't think we do. I fail to do that myself. But we think about our needs and what's immediately before us and we fail to see that God's unsearchable riches can supply any need that we have and beyond. James says, we ask and do not receive because we ask amiss. We ask that we, for things we might have according to our own needs. And uh, that's a gentle rebuke to all of us. What do you think this is a common problem throughout the church? Why is it a common problem? Because of our flesh. We get, you know, in, in the fall, in Genesis 3, the fall, we became as the gods. We're more likely to think of ourselves in our flesh than we are the needs of Christ and the supply of God. Well, that's where we're going in this prayer. How do you overcome that? We're going to look at these four, four petitions of the prayer we just prayed in Ephesians 3. This prayer is how we overcome the flesh and we can love with the very love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may sound impossible to you, but hang on. Let's look at, there's, there's a couple of things I want you to know about these four petitions before we get into them. 
These four, four petitions point to one purpose in Christ. And I'm going to reveal that purpose to you. You can be looking for it as we go. And the second thing is each of these petitions build on each other. There's a progression here. The first petition is required. It's a prerequisite for the second petition. And the second petition is a requirement for the third petition. And actually, the fourth petition is a result of the third petition. So stay with me as we go through these. The first petition is this. To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. This, this verse, you could do several messages on it. I'm going to give it five minutes. So you can go back and look at it later. The work of the church cannot be done in our own strength. Neither can we decide to accomplish our own purposes or our own preferences according to our own personal desires. That is a flawed and fatal strategy in the church. We are to be strengthened with might. And the word might here, dunamis in, in Greek, means ability. We're, we're to be made able by God's power at work within us. And if you look down at uh, Ephesians 3 verse 20 in the, in, in the doxology part, it talks about our God it's ex is exceedingly capable of providing us power. And that word dunamis appears there again, to make us able. We're going to get to that a little bit. God is able. Philippians 2.13, Paul writing again. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. And 4.13 Paul claims this, and you can claim this in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our tendency, though, is to get, do things in the flesh. This is our tendency. So we need this strengthening. Now, the strengthening is through the Spirit in the inner man. When it says inner man... Ladies, it means inner self. It's inclusive. It's gender neutral, to use the term today. Uh, it's through the strengthening of our inner self that God gives us his power. Now, let me go on with that. You know... And this is a good reason for theology courses. We're made up of what? We have an outer man or an outer self, and we have an inner self. Our soul is part of our inner self. So what Paul is talking about is strengthening our soul. Well, I would also include this means strengthening our thought life, strengthening our emotional life. From God's perspective. You know, 2 Corinthians, when Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. It's easy to lose heart when you're in a struggle in life. It's easy to lose heart when our church has been rendered. 
It's easy to lose heart when someone you love dies. Here's what Paul says. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day by God strengthening us. For our light affliction, he goes on to say, is but for a moment in light of eternity. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things that are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. And that gets us right back to our strategic mission of what God has called us to do and to be as a church. Now part of that strengthening shows up in the strengthening of the Holy Spirit given to us in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Listen to this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's listed first. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And this isn't an exhaustive list. This are, these are the qualities that are listed. There's more than this. Now, how many of you can live like that, according to these qualities, in your own flesh? I can't. And I don't think any of us can. Well, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit and the inner man is required for this next petition. And here it is. It's for Christ to abide in us. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What I'm about to share with you, this is the way we practice the presence of God in our life. God's not out here. He's right here if you're a believer. It's true, if you're a believer and you're in Christ, you're already indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The very moment that you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, God joined his Spirit to your spirit, and you, from that time on, without loss, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's not what this verse is pointing to. This, this verse, you might notice, says, may dwell. I'm an English major, so okay. That's subjunctive. It's conditional. He may or may not dwell in your heart. It's not talking about the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit. And here's why. The word dwell here means to be at home. Christ will be at home in your life. That means he can settle down with you in your heart, in your life. Ephesians reminds us not to quench the spirit through sin in our life, unconfessed sin, which will make Christ unwelcome in our home. That raises an immediate question for a person who says they know Jesus. The question really is, is Christ at home with you, with your life, 
your thought life? Or does your flesh overpower the working of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you have a lack of love in your life because of your flesh? Let me give you an illustration. John, apostle, he's called the beloved disciple, the disciple who Jesus loved. He leaned on his breast at the Last Supper. He, had, he, he, he was already worshiping the Lord Jesus. At the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples he was going away to where they could not come. And here's what Judas Iscariot, not Iscariot, not the traitor, not the betrayer, said in John 14, 22. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him. We will come to him and make our home with him. What's the requirement there? Keeping Christ's word, keeping God's word, the word of scripture. And it doesn't mean you're, <laughs> none of us are perfect in doing that. But you keep short accounts in your life. When you sin, you confess it. And that's, that's part of keeping the word. Okay, let me go on from here. I want to just say that I'm often dismayed. In fact, I cringe when someone, when I hear someone say, doctrine, the word of God, which it's called that, doctrine, it's the teachings of the word of God, Doctrine divides, but love unites. That is not true. That's a false statement. And the scriptures are full of counters to that view. John 17, 17, for example. Christ, in his priestly prayer to God the Father, he's, he's going to be crucified in just a matter of hours. And he's praying to, to God, not only for those who are following him then, but all those who will come after him. And here's what he says. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And just so there's no mistake, when I use the term about doing something biblical or scriptural, I don't mean in a pharisaical sense. As in a legalistic sense. I mean when I say biblical or scriptural, I'm embracing and including the whole counsel of God's word. It's easy to say, well, he, he quotes scripture all the time to call him a legalist. I think that sometimes is falsely done. We need to be careful not to do it. Here's what Jesus said about holding to his word talking to the Samaritan woman, John 4, 23. The hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit, our spirit, and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The best part of abiding Christ abiding in you, it's not good enough that we need the Lord. It's part of his unsearchable riches to have Jesus, the very spirit of Christ, indwelling us, strengthening us, enabling us, empowering us, not so we just can do our best, but so that we can honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the third petition brings us to the very purpose of Paul's prayer for the followers of Christ in the church at Ephesus and in the church at Baraka. The third petition is for us to know the limitless love of Christ. Verse 17 through 19, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Now, that know, again, is practical, experiential knowledge. It's not a head knowledge. This is how we've got to be enabled with God's power in our spirit. We've got to practice the abiding of Christ. By, by being true to his word. And then here, we're to come to know the very love of Christ. Well, this is a long petition with several parts. I'm going to just touch on several as we work our way through it. With Christ's spirit dwelling in you, and you're humbly, humbly obedient to God and his word, Christ takes up residence in you to be at home with you by his spirit. That's what abiding in Christ means. But what does it mean to be rooted and grounded in his love? I got the Greek down on that, but my wife helped me on the gardening part. (laughs) And this is about gardening. Let me do the Greek part first. The scripture says we're... Being rooted and grounded in love. It's a passive perfect. I'm going to tell you what that means, in case you don't know. A passive voice means it's God who does this to you. You don't root yourself in God's love. God himself does it. It's the passive voice. Well, how about the perfect tense that this part of verb participle is in? The perfect tense means that once this is done by God, it's done. But the results continue in your life. Well, you will continue to enjoy the fertile soil of Christ's life. All you have to do is cooperate with God. Get into these petitions and and, and bring them into your life. Okay, where did Christ explain this profound truth? Scripture best explains scripture. That's why I quote so many scriptures. 
I could do it in my own words, but that would be less effective than using the word of God. I'll tell you where he does it. He does it in chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. He starts out this way. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The way you're grounded and rooted in the love of God is because you're grounded and rooted in Christ Jesus, the vine. You don't go sticking your own root in the ground. He's already got it in there. You just need to be connected to him. It goes on to say, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Well, this is the very reason that Jesus sets a high standard for us concerning loving one another. In John 13, 33 through 34, this is a good memory verse. Jesus says this, a new commandment, not a new request, not a new ask, a new commandment. He means for us to do this. I give to you this new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Sacrificially. Willing to give your life for others. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, can you love others in your own strength? You cannot. I've already seen that that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, you can be moral. You can take these precepts and in an intellectual way, say, yeah, I need to love every, everyone. And you can practice that from a moral con uh, construct. It's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about us being enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to love one another. We can't just give lips or, oh yeah, I love everybody. Yeah, I wasn't very loving to him. I'll do better next time. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Here's the fourth petition. that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If the love of Christ in you, that you may love one another as Christ loved you, here's the reason, that's the purpose. The third petition is the purpose. The fourth petition is the results. For us to be made complete with God's fullness in Christ. 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. John Calvin put it like this. The great, he's the great church reformer of the 16th century. He said, Christ's mission will not be complete with the church until the church is in his presence and made complete in heaven, filled with the fullness of God. And that's true. That's when Jesus says our joy will be made complete. But you know what? When does, when does God start working on you to make you complete? Yeah, the moment you become a believer, the moment you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It starts then. How many of us have lost time in that process? How many of us have lagged behind? I have. I think if we're truthful, all of us have lagged in allowing Christ to work, to enable us through his spirit, according to the riches of God, to make us complete in Christ. Oh, we won't be fully complete in this life. Well, we can be further along than we are now. I'm trying to speed up my processes. I've gotten to be almost 78. <laughs> I know I've missed out on my time. Don't wait till you're 78 to get going. Well, as you struggle against the sin within, the sin of others, the sin of the world, and even our adversary, you're not in this by yourself. That's the thing we need to continue to remember. The Lord Jesus is your point man. Like Patrick said, he's not just out in front. He's within you. And that's exactly... You, don't think of Jesus up here. No, his body, his presence in his body is there. Jesus is here, right here, indwelling through his spirit. And this is how you begin to practice the presence of God with you, in you. It's just not by manifest, it's not a feeling. It's a reality, it's a fact that the presence of the very Lord Jesus in his spirit is within us. And we need to practice that by a commitment of our will to his word, to him to empower us to, to know that. Come back to this repeated theme from the, from the, gospel, the, the gospel writer John, writing in 1 John 2, 3. Now by this we know him experientially. If we keep his commandments, well, this theme is repeated so much. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected, made complete in him. That's what we need to be. That's the result of the empowering of God's spirit the abiding of Christ, the being rooted and grounded in his love, the perfection of Christ's love in us. Well, this is how it is and must be for now in this present life. But John continues. Uh, this part, oh, what a blessing. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 2. Behold, what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Where's Sheila? Yeah, well, when you're teaching your children about God, it almost made me tear up when Sheila teared up. We are, think, think of God thinking of us as his children and he's trying to help us become complete in Christ. Here's what 1 John 3, 1 says. Therefore, the world does not know us, doesn't know the real us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, Christ, is revealed, here it is, we shall be like him. We're not going to become gods, but we will be like Christ. Our love will be perfected in Christ. We can't even comprehend that. But that is exactly what the promise is. Okay. Coming close to the end. Okay, we've done a look back. We've done a look forward at these four petitions. Now we're going to do an upward look. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Don't leave this phrase out. It's not just talk about God working on his own in creation. It says, according to the power that works in us, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think through his power at work in you. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. This is a good one to commit to memory. Write it on your hearts. Meditate it on your mind, in your mind. There's no greater strategic purpose or reason for joy in this life to be, God be the glory in the church for what he's called us to be and to do forever and ever. Now here's, here's um, I don't think I've got this in your notes. Jesus' final prayer in the upper room. This is the last verse in chapter 17 as Jesus and the disciples go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, being prepared, he's preparing the disciples for his death. And this is the last words he gives them. I have declared to them, your, he's praying to the Father, I have declared to them your name and will declare it. And the love... The love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That he might abide in us. That we might grow to know the love that Christ has for us by him abiding in us. Well, I wish I could end right on that note. I've got one more. Jesus' final word to the church at Ephesus. It's important to hear how this worked out in Ephesus over decades. I have no doubt there were many who came to Christ. I have no doubt there were many who conformed to the image of Christ by being members of the church of Ephesus. But here's what Jesus said to them decades later after Paul had prayed for them. Jesus said, I know your works, speaking to the church of Ephesus. 
I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That could describe a lot of us, a lot of churches. To an extent, it could describe our church. But listen to what Jesus says next. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have lost, you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Let's bow our heads on that note. The last look we're going to take today is an inward look. A confessive confession. And as I pray for us, you can confess in your own heart. You can make your own commitment to the Lord Jesus, to the fa- our Father in heaven, God Almighty, who called us to be his children. Father, we do confess the first love of any church, of any person who professes Christ as their Savior, must be the Lord Jesus. We know we have fallen short as a church, as individual believers, and we ask your forgiveness. We thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit that enables us to keep in step with you. Help us to follow Jesus, our point man, and not to get ahead of him or to lag too far behind. Restore us, Father, to the church you want us to be. I want you to examine your heart this morning. Father, reveal to each of us where the Lord Jesus is at home in our hearts or not at home. In our recent strife and struggles as a church, reveal to us how the Lord Jesus must go before us. Our point man, our protector, help us not to be overwhelmed with doubts and unbelief. Grant each of us according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened with might through your spirit that Christ may dwell in our hearts, that we may know the love of Christ and be filled with your fullness. Father, we remember you say in your word that love never fails. And now we're to buy it in faith, hope, and love, these three. And the greatest of these three is love. Amen.